0: thank you for checking out the mercy hill church sermon podcast if you would like to know more about mercy hill you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc so god we are we
1: we are humble, but we choose to humble ourselves um before you and before your word today so as as david shares what you have worked through this week on his heart to share god we ask that our hearts would be open that you would
0: find nooks and crannies and cracks in our hearts that, um, that need your word and your truth and your redemption. So, Lord, we, we just we lift him up before you, that every word is, is from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Tim, and it is good to be at Mercy Hill this morning. I bring you greetings and love from your brothers and sisters at Living Word. Uh, Living Word is uh, alive and well and prospering in all kinds of different ways and struggling in all kinds of other different ways. And it is church. It's family. Uh, but God is just present among us doing a great work. So I'd still, I've still i been their pastor for uh, 16 years, just celebrated 16 years. And I love it today as much as I did back then. It's a fabulous place, as I know this place is as well. And so anyways, I bring you greetings, and it's good to be with you. This morning, they're actually, I'm... Um, I I was really hard to come today, to be honest, because Living Word has set up the whole stage and the whole auditorium has been rearranged for the Rock and Roll Christmas show tonight. So if you don't have plans, uh, or if you do have plans, change them, because it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal time. Uh, The Visible Music College does their annual gift back to the community, and it's a free concert. They asked Living Word to host it, so we gladly said yes, and they have reconfigured the whole place to make it this incredibly fun Christmas setting. It's going to be fun Christmas songs, and it's going to talk about Jesus, and it's going to be a real celebration. So come, be there. You can bring kids, they'll enjoy it. Uh, bring in, it's a perfect thing to bring a neighbor to, if you want to just somehow initiate a conversation about Christmas that involves Jesus. Um, and it'll be a riot, so you won't, you won't be sorry you spent the time. 7 o'clock tonight at Living Word. Was that a shameless plug, or was that just a good reminder? It was both, agreed. I want to, um, boy, just echo some of the things that have already been said today because whether it's your holiday Thanksgiving meal or your pickup truck or whatever facet of your life um, you might think of, for it to belong to the Lord is in such a contrast for you to possess it for yourself. And the Christian life is... Daily decisions of saying, I belong to the Lord, this belongs to the Lord. My life, my influence, my position, my family, my things, they belong to the Lord, because I belong to the Lord. But the constant battle for us is that we tend to think that we possess ourself. We possess our gifts and abilities. I was just so encouraged that Zach was here this morning. I met him at one of the concerts, the summer concerts at the Visible Music College this summer. And I just loved his heart, his passion for music, but also for Jesus and for the lost and for those on the margins and the fringes of society that were just captured his heart. And he's giving his life and his abilities, and evidently his family structure, and they live in a, they're taking a tour now, because they want music to proclaim the good news of Jesus and how God makes things right that are wrong. He deals with injustice and grief. But that is the decision we all constantly live with every single day. And there may be a moment when you feel like, man, I am just a a living sacrifice. Romans 12 talks about, in view of God's mercy, live your lives as living sacrifices given to God. And at moments we feel that, we're like, yes, that's what I want to be. All that I have is yours, Lord. And then like any typical sacrifice that's still alive, it tries to climb off the altar. And we repossess our life and our things and our future. And it's this constant battle. And it is the great theme of Christianity that we continue to surrender our life to Christ. So I wonder how surrendered you are at this moment. The natural gravity of selfishness and, and the sin nature of our life tends to pull us back towards self, pull us back to thinking our perspectives are right, our thoughts are right. You know, if people wrong me, then our offenses are justified. And the constant voice of the gospel is say, give your life away. Give your life to Christ. Give your life to others. Jesus says, if, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you'll truly find it. It's just the nature of the call. Jesus walked by his disciples and said, drop your nets, follow. Are you a follower? These themes are not new to the New Testament. We find them rampant in the old. That the, the problems of Genesis, when sin entered the world, Genesis 3... When shame and pain and blame fought against God's creative order of dignity, of community, and of blessing. We see that battle raging through all of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into our own very lives. Where God's redemptive purposes, the upper story as we've been calling it, of God's grace to redeem humanity, battles with humanity. Human's lower story amnesia that we think we just have to struggle and fight and survive on our own. And that battle continues. And we see it, boy, ever so vividly in the book of Kings. You see it in Judges, you see it in Genesis, you see it everywhere. But I was a little disappointed that Johnny asked me to preach the story of chapter 14 because it's such a depressing story. Like, can't I talk about, like, I want to do Ruth. Let me do young David. That's a great story. But the story of kingdoms torn in half is a depressing story. And so we're going we're gonna to cue the video. These murals are fantastic. I love them. They help try to capture the overview of the chapter I trust that you've read this week. Do please be diligent to read. Uh, the book, st- The storybook that you have is just an abridged chronological bible it's not some other story it's the story but it's set in a way that if you spend 30 40 minutes a week reading it submitting your heart and mind and your worldview to what's happening in scripture you'll find the truth of God finding new traction framing your world in new ways which lets you understand the heart of God and choose wisely so read it don't just wait for the mural the mural is like not enough But anyways, uh, let's watch it and I'll come back and we'll hear a sermon on judges or on kings.
1: At the end of King Solomon's reign over Israel, God told a man named Jeroboam that he would become king over all but one of the tribes of Israel. But Solomon wasn't ready to give up the throne. So he tried to kill Jeroboam, who escaped and fled to Egypt. A short while later, Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam was named king. The people were unhappy with the heavy taxes placed on them and went to complain, along with their spokesperson, Jeroboam. Despite their complaints, the king refused to listen. Furious, most of Israel made Jeroboam their leader and lived in the northern territory called Israel, where Rehoboam ruled over the southern tribe called Judah. After being a united country for many years, Israel was now split in two. The new king of the Northern Territory, Jeroboam, was worried that when his people returned to the south in order to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, they might be persuaded to become loyal to Rehoboam instead of him. So he devised a plan. He constructed two golden calves and told his people that they were the gods that helped them escape from Egypt many years earlier. Then he had a huge festival to worship these gods, and unbelievably, the Israelites went along with it. Then one day, Jeroboam was at one of the altars making a sacrifice when a man who followed God approached Jeroboam and warned him that his kingdom would soon be ruined. Jeroboam stretched out his arm and shouted, Seize him! As he did, his hand shriveled up. Terrified, Jeroboam pleaded with the man to pray for him. So the man prayed for Jeroboam's hand and it was healed. Even after this display of God's power, Jeroboam still led the people to worship other gods. For years, Jeroboam and Rehoboam were at war. When Rehoboam died, his son and then grandson took over as kings of Judah. His son worshiped other gods just like his father. But Rehoboam's grandson, Asa, was different. Asa got rid of the idols and was fully committed to following God. The northern kingdom of Israel continued to be led by a series of wicked men, none of whom followed God. One of these kings was Ahab, who did more evil in the eyes of God than any king before him. Perhaps worst of all, Ahab married Jezebel a woman from a foreign country who convinced him in almost all of Israel to worship a foreign god named Baal. Because of this, God would need to send a messenger to set things straight.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning with grateful hearts, knowing the truth of your gospel, that when the kindness and love of Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appeared. You saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of mercy. And that our inheritance is that of hope. Our inheritance is that of being forgiven and a part of your family. God, I pray that, Lord, as we look into these things even so many centuries ago, God, that you would speak to our hearts that we might know you better and that we might follow you, God, more wholeheartedly. And that, God, that you would set us free from bondage of sin. And that, God, you would deliver us, Lord, into the joy that you set before us, even in the presence of enemies. And, God, I just pray that there's anyone here tonight, today, God, that needs to hear a special word from you. Holy Spirit, God, go beyond my words. God, to speak to hearts today that, God, we might be fully yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we go and read through the story of the kings, you get a snapshot of it there. I printed out a list while I was studying this week of all the kings of both Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom. And they like highlight the ones that were good and they highlighted the ones that were like so-so and then they left plain the ones who were just evil kings. And the list is quite telling because there's only a couple that are highlighted good and there's a few that are highlighted so-so and almost all of the kings were left unhighlighted. And so the story of the kingship for which Israel begged and pleaded with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they wanted a king like all the other kingdoms of the world, had turned into just an absolute disaster. Because as the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the people followed them, And when a king occasionally did right before the Lord, the people did right before the Lord. And so the book of Kings is a a lineage. It's a... um, chronology of bad leadership of people really taking hold of things and possessing their life in the kingship for their own versus saying i belong to yahweh i will walk in his ways before we go into that and i'm not going to obviously hit all those kings i want to read you something from deuteronomy chapter 17 deuteronomy chapter 17 is part of Moses' sermons to the new generation of israelites who were coming out of the desert, about to take the land. So it rewinds all the way back to just after the 40 years in the desert, when the rebellious generation all died away, except Joshua and Caleb. And Moses is re-preaching to the people of Israel, to the people of God, remember the law, here is the covenant. Choose life, don't choose death. Obey the Lord and he will bless you. Disobey from the Lord and you will be not blessed. But God will raise up foreign oppressors, and God will cause division among you. And so, Deuteronomy, even the name Deuteronomy, it means these are the words, which is the first phrase in the book of Deuteronomy. They're Moses' words to the people of Israel as they were about to go into the land. Here's what it says. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and settle in it. And you say, quote, Let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. It's interesting. As we read through Samuel, when they ask for a king, it's viewed as a rejection of God, and a rejection of Samuel's ministry. The idea of a king was not outside of God's realm of expectations but the idea that they would look to a man instead of looking to god was well outside of god's expectations and so the sin that they 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 did was not that they wanted a king that they wanted to organize as a nation but that they wanted to look to a man instead of looking to god himself and so god predates all of that with the commands given through moses that when a king comes This is what he should look like. This backdrop helps us see see the failures of the kings Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the civil war that ensues and the division of the kingdoms, which both end up in exile. Be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. He must be a Hebrew. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself or make the people turn back to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord your God has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Don't go back to Egypt. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Did Johnny talk to you about this when he preached on Solomon? These are the laws for the king. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. When he takes the throne in his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of his law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, it is to be read all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees. And Do not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then, and only then, will he and his descendants reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. These are the expectations of the king. And I I saw a couple nods. You guys talked about this when you did Solomon, and how Solomon failed in so many of these ways. But this is the backdrop of a leader that is wholly given to God. First of all, their identity is clear. They are part of the people of God. They're given to Christ in our context. Back then, they were given to Yahweh. They were an Israelite. They weren't some foreigner. There was an identity issue. Secondly... They wouldn't amass wealth and horses. They wouldn't go back to the world's way of doing things to try to secure themselves, for they were secure in God, and Yahweh would take up His cause. Then God, Yahweh, would Himself establish Him and His descendants for many, many generations. But our instincts are to do things the world's way, and to amass wealth and horses and power and chariots and armies, right? Right? It's what Solomon did with all of his marriages. They were political marriages that accumulated wealth and built him up in his throne. So much so that the blessing of God left Solomon and it was only his faithful word that he said, because of David, I will not remove Solomon during his lifetime. But Solomon began to build his own kingdom and God left it. And I like the third one. He must not think of himself as better. If you understood this in the, the ancient Hebrew, the only title the king was supposed to have was brother. Could you imagine a king who you could call brother? The great American experiment we didn't want kings in America, so we had a president who was a temporary servant of the people to lead, and we call him at least Mr. It's not quite as familiar as brother brother obama but it's 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 along those lines that the president is under the law but the kings would try to be above the law that's why you see in all these ancient near eastern times the kings begin to identify themselves as god and their son of god caesar and all those people in the roman world and even then in the israelite world the kings would see themselves as above the law I could do whatever I want. It's good to be the king. But a king must not see himself as better than others. That's what God's leader looks like. It's what it looks like in the home. It's what it looks like in your job. It's what it looks like in the church. It's what it looks like in politics. God's leader is clear in his identity. I belong to Yahweh. I belong to Jesus and no one else. I will not amass riches and and allies of foreign types, of compromising types, to defend me for God himself is my champion and my defender. And he would not view himself as better than the rest. And this is how the story of the kings plays out. This upper story, that obedience to God's word and God's purposes has a direct correlation to whether you are blessed or whether you are cursed understand this that the downfall of the israelite kings and the unfolding of all of the god's promises to them is directly related to their obedience to god's word it's not because one was gifted or not gifted it wasn't because one was militarily better or worse kings is not about politics and it's not about war the book of Kings is all about an evaluation of covenant faithfulness. That if you are faithful to his covenant, if you, if you sur- live in a surrendered life to say, God, I will live your way and no other way. And when I take things back upon myself, whether it's power or whether it's resentments, whether it's autonomy, a liberty to sin, or whether it's just a reliance on material, worldly systems and wealth. God says you will fall under the curses category. When God judges Israel, when God even presses us, I so appreciated your testimony this morning about working, and how God needed to bring a breakthrough in your life, and how a change in you transformed your workplace. It is exactly how God works in our lives. He presses us to transform us. Do not resent or hate the Lord's discipline in your life. It has a redemptive cause. I promise you it has a redemptive cause. I love how the prophet says that the Lord, he is the potter and we are the clay. And the potter takes his potter takes his hand and he presses and he forces and he shapes. The clay cannot say to the potter, what are you doing? What right do you have to shape me? Simply, the clay cooperates and takes the shape of the vessel the potter wants to make. Such is the purpose of God's pressing in us. God's pressing, however, always is redemptive. It is always redemptive very much purposeful to form in us. His purpose and his blessing. I'll tell you the story, just testimony of our own lives. Uh, Living word, we lost a dear, dear sister um, a couple weeks ago. Some of you have heard of that. Uh, Rita Moore passed away. She was not only a member of the congregation, she was a dear friend of uh, my wife and I. She was a single mom. She lost her husband about four years ago. And so it was very devastating. It was very sudden. We didn't know it was coming. She had a heart attack and died. Uh, She left two children, minor children. She left five children total. Three are over 18. Two are under 18. And it's just a devastating situation. You feel wrung out by the Lord. I mean, we do, and it's not even, you know, our family. You can imagine what the kids are going through, trying to process and trying to figure out what's going on. Death is a evil and wicked blow in our world. It is not how God created us to be. God created us for life, not for death. But sickness and violence and all the destructive parts of sin in our world bring death to be a reality. The Bible promises the last thing to be defeated will be death. That is why we live in hope that even physical death for us, we don't grieve as if God is not There, we recognize that God himself will not only take, not our physical bodies yet, but our soul and our spirit to be with him where there is life. But one day, even our physical bodies will be resurrected back to life to be caught up with God, that he will make all things right and new. But in the meantime, we are pressed, but not crushed. In the meantime, we deal with the tragedy of this life, and we deal with the pressing of God to form in us, to be people who live in a broken world and yet live with a redemptive, not only posture, but a redemptive reality in our life, that this is not all that there is, and there is more to live for than just this life. And so we recognize that even the painful things, this is my point, that the discipline of the Lord and the painful things of this life, God overcomes the evil in them and performs good out of them. And He is able to shape us and redeem us and He brings in the grace and the tenderness and the love and His own precious kindness to hold us and to nurture us and to redeem us in those things. This is the story of the kings. This is the story of our lives. None of us are more than a half a step away from that kind of sadness and grief. But also none of us are a step away from the riches of God's sustaining grace and life and blessing. Just by way of an example, each king as we go through is basically judged by their covenantal faithfulness i like it how well, i don't like it how abijah uh, in first kings 15 the end of every king's life the author of kings writes this little summary statement it said he committed all the sins of his father and done before him his heart was not fully devoted to the lord his god as his heart david as the heart of david his forefather had been and so here's this king who gets the evaluation at the end of his life, It says, you know what? He was not faithful to the covenant. His heart was not given to God. He did not follow the Lord as his father David did, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the king is evaluated by whether his heart was fully given over to God. Then there's another one, Asa, 1 Kings 15. It says, Asa, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. The story of the kings is whether they were faithful to God's covenant. Let's focus just for a second on Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Because I want you to see Israel, God's purposed nation, as the upper story tells us, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, to be a people that belongs to God, that lives in His blessing, that lives in His richness, that lives in His presence, the joy of the Lord and the comfort of God and the strength of walking in His purposes would be prevalent throughout all of the nation. And here we, we hit this focus of time with Solomon, who God blessed and appeared to him and promised him wealth and fame and wisdom, had turned in his life to seek after women and power and horses and riches. And the legacy of this came to a head with Solomon's son. And so let me just read to you what happens in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. It's entitled Rehoboam's Folly, so you know it's not going to go well. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Jeroboam was someone who, at the end of Solomon's life, the prophet had come and says, "'You will be king over part of Israel.'" And so the word of the Lord comes and prophesies that Jeroboam would be the king over the northern, the ten northern tribes. And he does this prophetic sign act where he takes his coat off and he cuts it into 12 pieces and he gives 10 of them to Jeroboam and says, you'll be king over half. Solomon gets word of this and he runs to hide in Egypt. And so he comes back. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father... So Jeroboam, the would-be prophesied king, and all of Israel stand before Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and says, Your father made our yoke heavy. They're complaining because Solomon had put a lot of taxation and forced labor on his own people. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father... And his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you, they said to him. Or he said to them, go away three days and come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. He was saying, look, if you relieve them of this heavy yoke of burden, they will serve you and your kingship will be, will be in place. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men and gave him, um, that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. This, by the way, is where it's good to be an old man in the story. What do you advise me to do? How shall we answer these people that have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel the old man had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will make your yoke heavier. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the kingdom did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by the prophet Ahijah, the um, Shilamite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And then all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. And the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. The northern kingdoms were saying, We have nothing to do with Judah. We have nothing to do with David and Solomon. They're basically breaking themselves away. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. Just do your own thing. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam, it got on and on. And what happens is the single nation breaks into two, and the two begin fighting, civil war, dissent, division, and the rest. I want to just bring out a couple points to you because our time is now gone. But it falls under the whole idea of does your life belong to the Lord and will you follow His ways? Or do you feel like you need to go around and do your own thing, strengthen your own cause, build your own armies, and not trust in the Lord? This is true of pride and arrogance. And this is true of brokenness and sadness. The question is, is the Lord sufficient for you? Solomon started by saying, the Lord is sufficient for me. But he ended his life by saying, I will build my own kingdom. I want you to see something here because the irony is potent. Someone knocking at my door behind us? King Rehoboam as the people come to him and say, lighten our load. Solomon was harsh with us. He has a choice. He can either relate and connect with his people and make decisions that support and strengthen them, like the king in Deuteronomy 17, not think that you're better than others. Not try to amass riches and wealth and glory for yourself. And King Rehoboam decides not to do that, but rather to make their yoke heavier. Who does that remind you of? That should flash in your mind. There was another biblical character, not that much earlier, where Moses stood before him and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's own response was, I will not let your people go. I will make the yoke heavier, and we will increase their quota of bricks, and we will not fetch for them straw or mutton. And so here you have one of the great kings, the the line of David, King Solomon's son. And he takes the place of Pharaoh instead of taking the rightful place of the king of God's people. And you need to know that this seemed perfectly within his rights. He didn't listen to the old men. He listened to the young men. Which makes me want to ask you, where do you get your wisdom from? Where does your advice come from? There is wise counsel and there is foolish counsel. I have teenage boys and sometimes you can see the flurry of bad counsel among them as they're with their friends. Hey, should we we climb out the window and jump off the roof? See how far we can fly? Yeah, let's jump off the roof. That's a great idea. Yeah, you know what, I bet if we got off there, we got a running, you know, if we get a running start, yeah, I'm going to get the tape measure, and we're going to see how far we can fly. This is purely fictional, trust me. (laughs) If there would only have been an older man, say a father, (laughs) who they would have counseled with, it would have saved them a lot of hurt, but it would cost them a lot of hits on Instagram. There's something about having just a bunch of your peers together and this weird group think bad advice stuff can happen. But to reach back into the wisdom of God and pull it into the situation is a rare thing for a friend. If you have that friend, you're blessed. If you are that friend, you're a blessing. But here, the man who was called to bring leadership and the example of godliness to Israel becomes a form of Pharaoh. You look at King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was supposed to be as prophesied as one of the next kings of Israel. And God was in this process of bringing the consequences of their sin. Because you know what? Sin has consequences. When you do not follow the ways of the Lord, when you break the covenant in Old Testament terms, when you're not walking with the Lord in New Testament terms, when you're rebelling against God, there are consequences that come. And this civil war and division is part of the consequences. And here Rehoboam was, or Jeroboam was prophesied, you will lead the northern kingdoms. And here Jeroboam is meant to be this figure like Moses, who out from the yoke of slavery was bringing God's people into a place of liberty. Because Rehoboam, the southern king, was placing all this pressure and yoke of slavery, Jeroboam was supposed to take them out of that into freedom, into the prosperity of the land. God had even prophesied and spoken to his life that it would be so. But Jeroboam, instead of playing Moses, plays Aaron. And as he takes the northern kingdom to be his own, he builds statues of bulls. He builds idols, one in the north and one in the south. Why would he do such a thing? God had said that he would be king. He probably still had the ten pieces of cloth, the fabric that the prophet cut into pieces, in his hand. They were there. God had spoken it. Why didn't he just say, that is enough? But he had to build these idols because he feared that if the people would go to Jerusalem to worship, that Rehoboam and the southern kingdom would have a political edge and their influence would pull the kingship away from him. He felt vulnerable in human terms. Even though he should have felt secure in covenantal terms. Because God had spoken it. And so he builds these idols. And instead of being Moses the deliverer, he becomes Aaron, the idolater. And it's almost the exact same words used later in chapter 12. That Moses records when Aaron made the golden calf. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. The pinnacle of idolatry. The golden calf didn't save God's people. It was God and His kindness and His love for you. There are many things that we think in this life, this will save me, more money will save me, a better job will save me. If only that person would change, I would be saved. If only my wife would be different. If only my husband would be different. If only my children would be different. If only the pastor would be different. If only. And you fall into the role of Jeroboam who thought, well, I have to do something politically and religiously in order to keep the people from stealing the kingdom away from me. But God had spoken. I'm giving you these ten tribes. You will be the king. And if you obey me and keep my covenant, I will establish your descendants forever. There is an assurance that God gives us which is precious if we faithfully cling to his word, obeying it, not going to the right or to the left. There is a sense in which God establishes you and your family for generations as you make decisions to say, I am covenanting with God to obey his words. I will not chef to the right or to the left. Even though the world gets crazy and I think there's a shortcut, I think there's a better assurance. Say, no, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we have covenanted with God. We will not allow compromise or idolatry to come and influence us and pull our hearts away from God. For this is the story of the king's whether it came through foreign wives or whether it came through battles where they feared. I mean, you're you going to read the book of Kings for next the hundreds of years, generations of leaders. They're fighting one another or they're paying off foreign nations or they're making treaties so that the, this nation, Aram, will come and attack their, their, their brothers to weaken them. and It's this whole weird political science case study in world affairs and foreign policy when God says, if you follow my ways if you position yourself to receive grace I will always be your defender 300 will rout 30,000 one man will defeat an army I will defy the odds on your behalf if you trust me if you walk in my ways and we see when people fail to do that It brought division. You know, a lot of churches go through division. We have a fledgling little church network called Lifelink Chicago. Four churches, one family. You know how easily division could be planted in our hearts? comparison and fear and this person's there or they got that money or this is what's happening there and could all those things begin to say well you know what we got we can't trust that God's going to firmly establish us that God will give us what comes to us and God will give them what comes to them and we're just going to celebrate everything no no we have to make sure we position ourselves independently for strength even if it's at the cost of our brothers and sisters at another church or any other church in the area for that matter we slip out of covenant trust into worldly thinking. And God just shakes his head and he says, I am not going to be there for that. And part of his own love and faithfulness to us is that he actually brings the firm hands of the potter to the clay again to reform and to reshape. And we think the devil's against us when in fact God is chastising us. When we walk in covenant faithfulness, Obeying his word, he establishes us. I love the fact that there's these long litany of kings that do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then someone, thank you, Lord, someone will show up. Little The boy King Josiah will show up. And as a young boy, he'll find the book of the law. He'll find the scroll and he'll say, we need to change. We need to repent. We need to turn things around. We're doing it all wrong. And God will bless them. And and suddenly the whole nation will turn. And God's blessing returns to the land. God's redemptive grace is always only a whisper away. Even from the most vile offender. It's profound. It's magnificent. It's Jesus. Only a whisper away. Someone who has rebelled and walked so far from God, made their own nations, made their own names for themselves, gathered riches, thought they were better than others, defied who they were in God by prostituting themselves to worldliness, materialism, and sensuality. Grace is but a whisper away. Some of you may need to whisper fresh grace. Some of you may need to make real decisions and say, you know what? I don't want to be a Rehoboam. I don't want to be adding, the. I don't want to be Pharaoh. Pharaoh the oppressor. I want to be Moses the liberator. All these decisions that we make either consciously or subconsciously have consequences. All of them. You decide in your heart to be a Moses, to be a liberator. Man, whether you involve in a ministry like the Purdue Cal and the international students, or whether you 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 see other kids on the margin or in trouble or in peril, and you sacrifice your holiday or maybe even your spare bedroom. You say in your heart, I am going to lift the yoke of oppression, and I am going to bring justice and compassion to those who are being afflicted. God forbid you just say, I'm going to be white, middle-class America, enjoying my comforts. Repent. Hear me. There are needs and there are people in peril all around us. You need only walk across the street. You need only look across the aisle. God cares about justice in our world. And He cares that His people function as Moses, not as Pharaoh. Make a decision today. I I don't want to be Rehoboam. He thought he was within his rights to oppress, to be a part of the system of his father. (laughs) In the arrogance, my little finger. That actually isn't the literal translation, by the way. Do some research on that. My little finger is bigger than my father's thigh. He thought he was that much better than Solomon. Imagine that. Sometimes we think we're the deliverer when only we're the idolatry. We think we're helping people and we're doing a Jeroboam who only leads people to worship idols, put their trust where it doesn't belong. Are you someone who can speak to another and at the end of the conversation help them put their trust where it belongs? You don't have to be a theologian, pastor. You don't have to be a small group leader, you don't have to, all you have to be is someone who is convinced that trusting God is the way forward in life. And be someone who can communicate that to another and say, you know what? I don't know how to solve your situation. I don't know how to all these pieces are going to fit together. But I do know this. That if we don't serve a foreign God, if we don't put our trust anywhere else, but we put our trust in Jesus alone, He has many great and precious promises that to us are yes and amen. And that if we trust Him in our day, the few will rout the many. That though we grieve at night, joy will come in the morning. And that no broken heart will go unmended. Who are you? Pharaoh, Moses, Rehoboam, Aaron, Jeroboam, Solomon. Who do you relate to in these stories? These define us. They say who we are. Every one of those kings thought they were within their rights and did what seemed right in their own mind. And the Bible evaluates them according to covenant faithfulness and said they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they did not walk in the ways of their father David. What was David's big deal? David screwed up plenty. But it was said of David that he had a heart after God's own heart. He wanted more than anything else the things that were on God's heart. And that is a man, or that is a woman, or a child, or anything else that God will delight to raise up. I feel like it might stride, and I feel like continuing to preach these things, but our time is gone. Perhaps you could continue to preach them to yourself. Perhaps you could find some time in God's Word and say, Lord, I want to be a man after your own heart. And I recognize that the consequences of my decisions matter for me and for generations to follow. And I also recognize that the bad consequences that I and others have made can be undone in a whisper as we find God's grace afresh in our generation. Amen? You've been great. Let me stand and let me pray for you, and I'll turn it back over to Tim. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and your word. We thank you for the example that your scripture gives us God, that we might choose life and find your blessing. God, that you might cause us to be a Moses, a liberator, not an oppressor. That you might help us, God, to be those that help others to put their trust in you, not cause others to follow idols and put their trust somewhere else. And God, that we might be a people that no matter what happens, though we know that grace awaits us, when we turn to you. And Lord, maybe there's people here that need to turn to you now in their time of need. That you would come and you would bring blessing and you would restore and turn grieving into rejoicing. That would turn hopelessness into hope. And God would turn just despair, Lord, into a confident knowledge of your kindness and your love for us. So God, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.